0: This is episode 236 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, Surviving the Disaster in California, Important Lessons Learned, The Long View, Part 1, and Conflicted, Death by Virus or Snow, What Would You Do? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. And before we get started, you can make sure that you get the Prepper Website Podcast delivered to your preferred device without fail. We make it very easy for you to subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other favorite podcast network. And if you do feel you are receiving value from the podcast, we appreciate your kind reviews. Hey guys, I don't know if you are keeping up with all the earthquakes that are out there. We know that Alaska had a 7.9 yesterday, but uh, there's just a lot of them going off right now. And uh, if you have the disaster app, um, I got that through, and I've talked about that before through Ben over at Suspicious Observer. Uh, You know, it just alerts you. So I have it set to alert me when, uh, I guess, when you know, there's something like uh, six or six or higher goes off, right? Six point five or higher. I get a little, uh, my phone actually dings, right? But, uh, it does let me know if there are just regular earthquakes of a, of a certain magnitude, usually five or more. Uh, it kind of just shows up on my screen and man, there's just been a lot of them lately. Uh, and then just, you know, this afternoon and, uh, you know, getting into the time where I was going to uh, do the podcast. I mean, there was two, you know, decent sized ones. So, uh, and, and they're all over the place. I mean, the one went off in India and then another one in Russia. And so it's just, man, it's it's crazy out there. So keep an eye out on, uh, on all of that. And, you know, if you are a member of the Facebook group, uh, Ben over at suspicious observers puts out a video on what's going on with the sun and space weather and, uh, earth weather and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. He puts that out every single day and uh, so it automatically shows up in the Facebook group so uh, really easy and convenient for you if you go to Facebook it'll it'll just pop up in your feed and so you can watch it all right with that let's go ahead and jump into the first article of the podcast this first article it comes from edthatmatters.com and that's my personal blog where i uh, kind of blog about whatever you know but mostly preparedness and uh, it's also the place where i put guest posts so every once in a while, someone will email me and uh, send, you know, would like to send me a guest post. Uh, and I doing it on Prepper website is just it's just so ugly and nasty, it doesn't. The theme does not lend itself to uh, to do regular posts. And so I post them over the over at edthematters.com and then link them over at Prepper website. And so uh, this one is by and this is an anonymous guest post uh, by someone who dealt with the fires and then the the mudslides over in uh, Montecito, Montecito uh, California. And uh, some of the uh, some of the lessons that were learned, some of the things that they that they went through. So I think it's always interesting when we get real firsthand accounts of uh, anything preparedness related. And, uh, you know, if not anything, it kind of puts it in the back of our mind the possibility that, you know, one disaster can easily lead to another disaster. And also the the important idea that you have to be aware of your surroundings and what's going on at all times. So let's go ahead and read this one uh, again. Surviving the disaster in California, important lessons learned. For the past three years, I have been a member of the preparedness community absorbing every article with great interest, archiving, bookmarking, running out to keep my food and prepping supplies in order. Today, I would like to share with you the first-hand account of the tenacity, bravery, and amazing stories in a small community of 10,000 people in the state of California. A firestorm that began in Ventura after Thanksgiving moved across 440 square miles of mountain terrain, finally burning into the previous fires and extinguishing itself. With every fire, the next chapter is the rains and the havoc they leave behind. Let me go back in time so you can formulate a picture in your mind of the timeline of events and the scope of the disaster that is unfolding. It was the week before Thanksgiving and family, guests, and friends were arriving for all the usual celebrations in northern Santa Barbara. My hubby and I were looking forward to our vacation in Idaho. Our rental home in Montecito was the last thing on our mind. We lived and raised our children in this home for 25 years. It was a beautiful enclave of homes situated among 100-year oak trees. While sipping warm drinks in Idaho, my brother sends me a text to inform me of a fire that was moving rapidly from north of Santa Paula to Ventura, California, the day, Monday, December 5th. We kept a close eye on the developments in California and realized that we had to take the northernmost route into California due to a freeway closure along the coast. The fire was heading towards Ohio, California, and the concern was that it would jump the mountain range at Lake Casita and head to Toro Canyon. On December 10th, we leave at 5 a.m. from Idaho and head through Oregon on Highway 95 to avoid the closure of the main coastal route into Santa Barbara, California. The weather conditions are icy and low visibility. We are traveling in the dark on a highway we are not familiar with in poor visibility with temperatures of 4 degrees. I have a go bag and feel extremely tense as we are the only car on the highway. We make our way through all the mountain passes and drive 16 hours, but as we begin to enter the Santa Barbara area from the north, the plume of smoke and ash is extensive. Thankful to make our way to our home, we are carefully tracking the fire, which has now jumped the mountain range and moved into Carpinteria. We are certain the fire is heading directly for our home in Montecito, so we tell our tenants to leave and from there it is a tense week while we watch a fire obliterate the hills and houses all around us. As the fire exits and moves on, we return to see our home intact, but spot fires had burned all the landscape around our garage and guest cottage. The firefighters did an amazing job holding the fire back, but this is only the beginning of the devastation. Without water, my husband and I began to drive up the mountain toward the water tanks. We began to realize the extent of the damage that the Thomas fire left in its path. 100-year oak trees were reduced to trunks and stumps. Massive boulders were standing out like pearls on an ocean floor all along the mountain ranges. Hillsides that were once covered in brush were now barren and exposed. More importantly, those were no longer just hiking trails they were vertical slopes with nothing to hold back the charred debris that was now littering the hillside. When the announcement of the first winter storms hit the airwaves, we knew that if the rain was heavy, the floods would most likely destroy our home. On Monday, January 8th, we put sandbags and plywood in front of the door and advised our tenants to leave. We passed by our neighbor's house, not realizing we would never see him again. At 3.50 a.m. Tuesday, January 9th, a flash flood evacuate immediately warning was broadcast on our phones. One hour later, my husband's cell phone rings. It was his brother who lives down the road from us. They were trapped on the second floor of their home after a mudslide and had battery life on their cell phones, but no data. What was going on? They were cut off from outside communications and did not dare go downstairs knowing there was a massive landslide. Due to darkness, no one could foresee the tragedy that was unfolding in our close-knit community. At 7 a.m., my husband's brother and wife began making their way through the debris, only to realize that everything is destroyed and they are literally looking at eight-foot walls of mud, overturned cars, and debris everywhere. They find a beloved neighbor dead in the debris and begin searching for his wife. She is alive but badly injured. Their home had a 20 foot by 30 foot wide wall of mud and debris crashed through it. Another neighbor is trapped in their home and carried out. They were in bed without any clothing and unable to climb out. Many people are swept from their beds. Houses literally wiped off the foundation as the debris moved at speeds of 30 miles per hour or more through roads and creeks. From West Cold Springs Creek six miles across the Los Padres Range to Toro Canyon, the face of the charred mountain let loose and buried everything for two and a half miles all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The mud flow through our neighbor's home was over 20 feet high but 30 feet wide. Nothing can prepare humans for unexpected devastation. Furthermore, humans can only process so much and then they shut down and tune out. This is exactly what happened in the days leading up to this storm. The Thomas Fire was 24-7 media event that resulted in people either losing their homes or, like us, staying glued to the computer and television trying to figure out if our home was still standing. After seven days of being evacuated and non-stop media blaring doom and gloom, people were relieved to be home and the bad news behind them over 85% of the people that were told to mandatorily evacuate for possible flooding did not heed the warning. The highest number of fatalities were along the creeks in the voluntary evacuation zone. Many people felt the warnings were overkill, myself included. While I could see the threat, I could not conceive of the scenario that is before us today. So Lessons from being on the ground. Lessons to learn from this, yes, be prepared. Many people had no utilities and were trapped by the mud. They had to shelter in place until the first responders could dig their way to them. 2. Keep your phone charged at all times. This was the only way the responders could know where you were. Over 600 calls to 911 were made by people stating they were trapped. 3. Taking a hike up the mountain confirmed for me the dangers we were in after the fire. Many people did not understand what was behind their homes on the hillsides. Know your neighborhood. Number four, be friends with your neighbors. Those that have lost everything need you. And number five, mud and debris are dangerous. We tried to hike around and get to our brother-in-law's home and I became stuck in two feet of mud. My husband found a large branch and put it next to me. I had to methodically hand dig each foot out by hand. He had to just keep me from panicking and stay out of the mud flow. Otherwise, he would be trapped too. It is really hard to remain calm. Stay with a buddy. You will get into trouble and it is not safe. Prepping is all about love thy neighbor. We are now going in and helping everyone dig out. Many times on prepping websites I have read comments about abandoning people who are not prepared. Read the Bible. The level of destruction in an event is beyond human comprehension use all your resources and help others. You can build them back again if necessary. Finally, if all the experts are telling you that they are concerned and to get out, don't be a hero. Right now there are 19 dead people ages 3 to 89. A community of 10,000 people have been destroyed. It could take years to bring this area back. Mother Nature is a cruel reminder of how insignificant we are and how we cannot control or foresee every situation no matter how prepared. All right so uh, good article there and you know it's one of those things where this is someone who was prepared someone who has been you know doing doing the preparedness thing for about three years now and so they have a little bit of knowledge they have uh you know maybe not a little bit maybe a lot of knowledge maybe they have the gear They, you know they're going uh in, in in doing what they're supposed to be doing you know one of the the comments and i did not approve this comment and it's very rare for me not to approve comments they were really down on, I can't believe that this person, you know, left and, and went to California during the fires. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, if you read the article, that, uh, you know, they were, uh, they had a rental home and they had to go and they check on it and they ne- needed to make sure that, you know, if there was anything that they could do to help, uh, you know, uh, protect their investment. So that's why they, they go, yeah, could you have not gone? Yes. And they could have just kind of dealt with it but uh, they felt like they needed to go and to do as much as possible to uh, prepare for what was going to happen and so uh you know they they let the you know but i guess the big issue here is that there was the fire and then after the fire everyone felt like okay hey we can take a deep breath here because everything is you know everything was good our homes were saved uh you know we still have our homes and all that kind of stuff and then here you here you go a couple of you know maybe a week later uh, a couple of days later whatever and and then you have these rains and then you have this second uh, you know d- disaster happen that truly wipes you. you know if the fire didn't get you then the mudslides were going to get you and man it just you know very terrible you were you know we were talking about that we were reading. Uh, you know, about the mudslides and about the fires and all those kinds of things uh, when uh, when those things were going on. And, uh, you know, this, this article uh, was released, you know, a couple of weeks ago. So on those lessons learned, uh, the, the one about the phone, I mean, that's one that I talk about a lot. You should not only have, uh, you know, have your phone charged, but uh, you should have you know battery backups you know those they're not very expensive you can get a nice backup that will charge your phone two or three times some even more and uh, so that's always going to be a great investment and then have that charged up as well you know and so that's just that just always makes sense i have multiple of those you know and uh, my family takes them with them uh, if they're going to be in a situation where they know they're going to need to recharge i have them in my backpacks uh, they just are, are something that you should just have uh, it just makes sense we depend on our phones a lot and uh, you know if, if the cell towers are still up uh, there's a lot that you can do with that all right so uh, definitely that i love the idea of hey, she took a little a little hike up the mountain and realized that man this was going to this wasn't going to be a good deal And she already had it in her mind, uh, that if it rained, that there was going to be some devastation. If it was going to be a hard rain, there was going to be devastation. The only problem is, is that I guess, you know, this by happening, happening at night while everyone is sleeping and the rains come, uh, you know, you're just not as, uh, aware of what's going on when things happen at night. And so, uh, you know, it, it was, I guess it was good to have that evacuation order come through their phone. Um, but at the same time, you know, people still lost their lives. 19 people, uh, ages three to 89, man, that just, that just sucks. Um, some of you are not going to agree with the fact of, of helping your neighbor or not necessarily helping your neighbor, but helping them to the point of, you know, uh, you being less prepared, uh, you know, you helping them with, with uh, preparedness supplies and those kinds of things. I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, different ideas on that. This person felt like that was something that they felt they needed to do. And they're coming from uh, a Christian standpoint because, you know, one of the the sentences there was read the Bible, you know, and, uh, you know, love your neighbor and and do what you can uh, to help them out. And so, uh, you know, the, the the last thing there was, you know, if the experts are saying to evacuate, then don't, don't wait. Now, here's the thing. You remember in Florida when, when they asked everyone to evacuate and then, uh, that part of the state wasn't hit. I can't remember what part of it, it, it was, but that part of the state wasn't hit very hard. And then the authorities weren't letting people back in. And so what people were saying is like, man, we evacuated because y'all told us to evacuate. Now we want to get back to our homes and y'all aren't letting us in. Now part of it, there was good reason for that. You know, uh, utilities weren't up, electricity and blah, 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 and all those kinds of things. But there was people who didn't evacuate and they were, you know, they were surviving. They were fine. You know, they didn't have electricity and, and things like that, but they were okay the problem's going to be is next time that city is told or that community is told to evacuate, they're going to remember that they weren't let back in. And so they're going to be like, no, man, forget it. We're not leaving. And so they're they're going to have, uh, you know, they, they have that potential uh, to lose life and limb and, and all that kind of stuff because of that. So uh, I completely understand where not wanting to evacuate is, is part of it. Uh, being in Houston when people evacuated for Hurricane Rita and Ike, I saw the freeways, the freeways were crazy. People died on the freeways because they ran out of gas and, and uh, it was hot and all that kind of stuff. I completely, totally understand not wanting to evacuate and wanting to be with your uh, you know be in your home with, uh, with your stuff. When Hurricane Ike hit, um, we had lost power. And uh, we went. To, uh, my family, uh, my kids, my wife, and my kids went to go stay with uh, a church, uh, some church members, because they had power and they were good. But I decided to stay here at the house, and I was very, very glad I did uh, because it was, uh, it, you know, hur- the hurricane came through. There wasn't a lot of, of uh, uh, rain at that point; just a lot of wind and a lot of damage because of the wind. But the rain came the next day, and uh, and so we have a pool and, uh, all the junk in the pool, all the leaves and junk in the pool had clogged the drain. We have a drain that goes out to the street when the water level gets to a certain, uh, height and, uh, all the leaves and the junk in the pool, uh, clogged that drain. And so the, the water was so high, it was coming over the, um, it was coming over the pool and, uh, my backyard, my backyard patio was kind of flooded. And so if I wouldn't have been here, then we would have had water in the back of the house, you know, uh, and at that time I didn't have flood insurance. So, uh, that would have sucked really hard, but because I was here and it was raining so, uh, so much and I didn't get a good night's rest because we didn't have electricity and it was, uh, it was very, you know, rather warm. Uh, but, uh, I was, you know, I would wake up, I'd walk around, I'd look outside and scanned uh, and notice that the, the pool was overflowing. So I was able to go out there with a the flashlight and I was able to find the drains and unclog the drains. And then I was able to monitor it to make sure that, uh, that it didn't overflow or de- didn't get clogged up again. But you don't always have that opportunity, you know, when you're, when you're staying, when you have a, a situation happen, you're in the middle of the night, you're sleeping and you don't always have that situation, uh, or that the possibility to, you know, uh, check everything out, out and be aware. So, you know, that's one of those things you're going to have to decide, you know, if it's if it's uh, uh, for you to evacuate or, or not. Uh, but if, you know, the authorities are saying evacuate, like, uh, again, this uh, this person here said, you know, they had taken that trip up the up the trail and realized that, man, there's nothing holding back, uh, you know, the, the dirt and the debris and all that kind of stuff that if there was a hard rain, it was going to come uh, come flowing down. So, all right. Uh, in this article, I did in all the lessons. I try to put another link to something that's relevant to the lessons that uh, that was shared here. And so, if you're interested in that, uh, again, like always, they're going to be in the show notes, and you can go check that out. Again, that's at, over at Ed That Matters: Surviving the Disaster in California. Important lessons learned. All right, our next article of the podcast comes to us from Survival Blog, and this article is uh, it's actually a part part one of uh you know and i'm not sure how many parts there are to this one uh it's called the long view and it's the idea of being prepared you know a lot of the times we talk about being prepared for uh you know the hurricanes for the floods for uh you know the the smaller things in life you know uh but what about you know when you talk about surviving long long term have you put any kind of thought into that And so people who are preparing for, you know, big ones out there, uh, you know, the big ones that would kind of shut things down. Um, you know, what would you, what would you do? What would your plan be if you were surviving for the long, long term? And so this idea here is, is kind of one of the ways that I really started to think when I first started into preparedness, really thinking about, you know, how can I be sustainable for the long, the long haul? And so there's some lessons here, some ideas here, and some things to consider. So hopefully, uh, you know, you'll get some ideas here. All right, and then I definitely want to come back and just comment on a couple of things. All right, so again, uh, over at survivalblog.com, and uh, the article is entitled "The Long View." I try to have a long view, the one that is both near and far in perspective. Whenever significant events occur, I do a quick review of my potential events risk analysis to see if anything's changed that might impact how I'm prepared. For example, when North Korea started acting up, I realized that I needed to do some additional preparations to handle potential nuclear and EMP events. At the start of every year, I also do a deep dive review to see if there's anything I might need to reconsider or adjust. During this year's review, I thought of a question that I really didn't have a good answer to. How long am I really prepared to survive for? I have about a year's worth of food stored. Every year I have a decent sized garden that I harvest and can for the winter. And I also harvest the seeds for next year's garden. I can fish and hunt year round, so I have pretty steady access to meat. I have several waterproof bins worth of medical supplies and my house can be heated with wood alone if necessary. There are several hundred gallons of water stored inside and several high capacity water filters. I live next to a lake and near a river. But I also realize that many of these preparations aren't sustainable in, time, in terms of multiple years and may depend on having the right tools, supplies, and skills available and in working order to make them viable in the long term. One question you need to ask yourself when preparing is, how long should I plan on the need to be completely self-sufficient? If you're only worried about events like earthquakes or blizzards, you may only need to be able to take care of yourself and your family for a few weeks or maybe months. However, if you're concerned about events with a long-term impact where society may not reassert itself for years or even decades, you may want to consider expanding your preparations. For the purpose of this discussion, I consider long-term planning to be anything beyond two years after a society-ending event. One of the hardest changes for most people will be shifting from a throwaway attitude to a repair-everything one. Since you won't be able to run down to the store or log on to Amazon to buy replacements for things that break, you'll need to start developing repair skills. Start by taking an inventory of the things you'll need and use on an extended basis. These might include knives, saws, shovels, hammers, farming tools, solar systems, etc. Now think about all the ways they can fail and how you could go about fixing them several years down the road when there are no stores available. Keep in mind what may not store well long term. These things might include welding gas, liquid glue, duct tape, etc. Here are a couple of ideas for items you may want to stock to help with repairs. Haywire, Clamper, and Wire. This allows you to create tight and strong repairs using wire. Powdered Glue. If you store this in an airtight container, it will remain effective for years. You should also become familiar with making and using natural glues like hide glue and pine pitch glue. Nails, screws, nuts, and bolts. The purpose of these is kind of obvious. WD-40. This stuff lasts forever and has thousands of uses. Hot glue sticks. You can melt these with any heat source and use them for repairs and they'll last a long time if stored in an airtight container. Files. Useful for hundreds of different repairs. Sharpening stones and pucks. These can be used to repair any edged tool. Self-using silicone repair tape. The manufacturers claim this stuff will store for decades and still be effective. Sewing supplies. This is handy because clothes tear. Solder. Yes, you can solder without a soldering iron. Manual tools. Your battery operated drills and gas chainsaws are nice, but for long term repairing, you'll need the tools and skills that your ancestors utilized for hundreds of years that only required muscle and skill. Some recommended manual tools. Here are some items I'd recommend acquiring and practicing with a brace and bit with a good selection of drill bits, chisels, various types of handsaws, hand, hand planters, carving knives, a tread lathe, wrenches, a screwdrivers, and a forge. Having the skills to do repairs is just as important as having the tools and supplies. You should start practicing a repair everything lifestyle right now. Not only will it save you a lot of money, you'll have the skills you need to sustain yourself and your family long term. One of your biggest long term concerns will need to be food. If you aren't currently completely self-sufficient in terms of food production, you probably won't be able to become so after a major long-term disaster. The rule of thumb is that it takes anywhere from, one, from a half to one acre of land to grow enough food to feed a single person per year, and that doesn't include meat sources like chickens, rabbits, or cows. You also need the capability to preserve food for consumption outside of the harvest season, like canning, smoking, etc., even if you do currently grow and preserve a lot of your own food, you should take an inventory of what you need to continue to support that process on a long term basis. Do you harvest and save your own seeds? What tools do you need for farming? Do you use commercial insecticides? Do you depend on commercial fertilizer? Or can you feed a one acre farm using just compost? Practice maintaining a farm now. Maintaining a one acre farm long term is very different than growing a small backyard garden, and if you try to accomplish the transition after a major SHTF event, you'll be well behind the curve. You should consider starting the process now. Below are some considerations in this process. Assuming you have the land, begin expanding your food production until you can support your family and have a surplus. Practice using easily produced and repairable manual tools to do as much of the labor as possible. You don't need to completely replace your labor-saving gas and electric tools, but you should be prepared to continue farming if they aren't available. Wean yourself off of commercial chemical products. Start using composting, natural, easily available, and easily stored insecticides, and methods like companion planting. Practice food preservation. Can the foods you grow with the goal being to minimize the amount of food you have to buy at the store. Make sure you have plenty of spare canning supplies since glass jars do break occasionally. Harvest your own seeds. Your goal should be the ability to plant next year's crops without having to buy any new seeds. In order to extend your growing season, consider setting up a greenhouse. Make sure you have enough repair and replacement materials to sustain it in the long term. Learn how to forge to supplement your farming. While it's probably not practical as a long-scale, long-term food source by itself, A good dandelion salad or a handful of fresh raspberries can add some much needed variety to your diet. The same concept applies to farming animals. If you're not currently doing it, even on a smaller scale, it'll be extremely difficult to start after a disaster. Even if you're currently raising chickens or rabbits, are you prepared to continue to do so on a long-term basis without any outside support? Can you diagnose and treat injuries and diseases? If you want to make yourself more self-sufficient, I recommend taking an animal husbandry class or two. ACS out of Australia offers a good online animal husbandry certificate course. Depending on your situation and location, you may also want to consider fish farming. It adds another dimension to your long-term food supply and it's not very labor intensive. Tomorrow we will continue with this section on food and move into water, weapons, and more. Uh, there are links to the long view part two and part three already on the bottom there. I uh, didn't see that, uh, uh earlier, uh, survival blog has a great community. So there's a lot of comments here. Uh, so you can, uh, you know, look at the comments and get, gather more information. I don't want to scare you and freak you out, man. If you are, you know, because this, this author is talking about, you know, go and get a one acre you know, pl- plot of land and start farming it. That's very hard to do if you like. You are a regular person with a regular job, right? And you live in the suburbs. Uh, there's no way that I could garden or farm uh, a one-acre spot. And so, uh, you know, take take that with a grain of salt. If you have the if you have the uh, the land, I would think that yeah, you would want to do that. You would want to. Start adding i mean i don't know if i would be farming a whole acre but i would be adding you know fruit trees if you don't have fruit trees and and maybe some bushes berry berry bushes and and whatever you know uh those kinds of things that would uh lend itself to uh you know produce food food for you and uh, fruits and and for you in the long term right so you can kind of plant those and and make sure that they get off to a good start and then just kind of watch them you know as you go But uh, if you are just, you know, you live in the suburbs or let's just say you even you live in an apartment right now and you have maybe a tomato plant or or two and that's where, you know, or you do some herbs, stick with that. You know, Um, there are ways to garden and you can do some high intensity gardening on a, you know, in a small backyard garden that can produce a lot of, uh, you know, food, a lot of fruits and vegetables and things like that. There is, uh, you know, there are books on that. There are people that do that. In uh, Doomsday Preppers, I believe when that when that was first out, did a uh, one of the episodes focused on a family in California, and uh, I've read about them in other articles as well. I cannot remember their names, uh, but you know they do that many. Uh, you know backyard farming, and they, what they do is instead of going outward, they go vertical and so they start planting and um, you know make vines go vertical and things go vertical, and so they use every little area that they can, and so they grow a lot of their own food and so you know there's a lot of ways to do that, but i don't want to discourage anyone from you know having your backyard garden or or if you were going to set up a backyard garden go ahead and set that up and yeah you need to Gardening is not as simple as putting a seed in the ground and then you're gonna have uh, you know fruit you know a few uh, weeks down the road. Yeah, you need to practice at it. you know I've been doing it for a while and I'm still not that good at it uh, you know and, and so you need to keep practice at, practicing at it and figure out what works, what doesn't work, what you need to uh, what you need to do and experiment and all that good stuff. So I just wanted to quickly encourage you not to, you know, not to be discouraged uh, if you don't have a lot of land. If you're gardening, there's uh, there's a lot more to it than just uh, having a lot of land to uh, to put seed in the ground. Uh, I like the ideas of the tools. I kind of touched on that the other day, not too long ago, uh, talking about tools that uh, don't need uh, batteries and don't need uh, you know electricity. You know having having the manual battery or the having the manual tools are are really great but that doesn't mean that you you know you don't use and they this article alludes to it as well it doesn't mean you don't use your electrical tools it doesn't mean you don't use your your battery operated tools those things make life easier why do you want to make things harder um but i think the idea is you know realize that you can use those other things those handheld tools and and uh, you know they're not that difficult to use yes it's going to uh, use a little bit more manpower you're gonna have to you know uh, you know uh, put a little bit of effort into it it's not as easy as pulling a trigger on a drill right but uh, you know there that the idea is that uh, you do have those tools if you ever needed to rely on them for whatever reason so uh, you know good idea here in thinking long term and uh, hopefully that gets you thinking a little bit about, you know, hey, long-term, what, um, you know, if something was to happen, you know, we don't live our life in fear, and we don't live our lives worrying, but thinking a little bit about it, I don't think ever hurt anyone, uh, unless you're the type of person that just starts freaking out, you know, I have talked to people like that, like Todd, I cannot go there, because my mind will not shut down, and I cannot, you know, I cannot, stop thinking about that. And so that's, you know, I just don't. And so I have had that conversation with people before where they don't want to start talking about preparedness because, you know, they'll get into that thing is like, you know, uh, the, the whole fear thing. So, but we don't prepare out of fear. We prepare because we want to make sure that we can take care of ourselves and we can take care of our family. And it's just common sense. But I think a little bit of thought into, hey, what would it look like if it was long term? What would it look like for me you know the, if we were going a year out you know and, uh, and see you know if there's something that you could add to your preps that maybe would be a little bit longer term? Uh, add something to your uh, to your gear, add something to your knowledge that you know, could help you if you were ever in that situation. So anyway, uh, that article again over at survivalblog.com. All right. Because it is the Thursday podcast, we always do a conflicted scenario. Conflicted is a card game that has a, a scenario on it that will um, cause you to be conflicted about how to actually answer it. And so this one is entitled Death by Virus or Snow. And uh, it's a little bit more lengthy than uh, the one that I did last week. And so you you know really kind of think about this one. Now, the tendency is to hear it and then quickly throw out, uh, you know, what you would do. Sometimes there's more things to consider. Sometimes there's other perspectives. And so don't go, don't take the easy road out on, you know, like, oh, that's simple. Boom. I would do this. You know, uh, you know, think about it a little bit, you know, is there a way around this? Is there a way that, uh, you know, things can, it could be win-win for everyone. Is there a way that, you know, we can help everyone out here? Um, with my knowledge of preparedness, how would I answer this? Not necessarily with the gear that I have, or not necessarily answering it like uh, sometimes I get on the on the website. Oh, I would never be in that situation because you know I have this, this, and this. So not necessarily all that. But after hearing this scenario, how would you respond with what you know about preparedness? You know what what would you do? And so knowing yourself, uh, how would you respond? So let's go ahead and read this one here. After being forced out of your bug out location by looters you and your bug out group of 20 people half of them children walk for hours in a snowstorm looking for shelter. You find a 45 foot insulated truck trailer that would be the perfect shelter. Within days of moving in a family contracts a life-threatening virus. Sickness and death could spread through the entire group if they stayed throwing them out in the snowstorm would surely mean the infected family's death what would you do in this situation and why again think about you know try to look at it from different perspectives try to look at it from uh not look at it from just like oh yeah they got to go you know we got to we got to protect everyone try to think it through just a little bit more are there some things maybe that uh that that could be done are there some things maybe that uh, you're not really you you you're not thinking all the way through, right? And so here we go. I'm going to do it one more time, and uh, just so if you didn't get it on the first time. After being forced out of your bug out location by looters, you and your bug out group of 20 people, half of them children, walk for hours in a snowstorm looking for shelter. You find a 45 foot insulated truck trailer that would be the perfect shelter. Within days of moving in, a family contracts a life threatening virus. Sickness and death could spread through the entire group if they stayed. Throwing them out in the snowstorm would surely mean the infected family's death. What would you do in this situation and why? All right, so uh, feel free to you know, process that on your own. If you'd like to come over and share your thoughts on this one, uh, it's over at edthatmatters.com. Again, I link to it in the, the show notes, and so you can go straight to it and drop your, uh, your you know, how you would answer this scenario in the comment section and uh, share it with everyone else. Um, I normally put these on, link, to, link them on Prepper website, and so you can, uh, but, you know, they go up here on the podcast before that, so you can get in on, uh, you know, being one of the first comments uh, on, on how you would answer that scenario. All right, guys. That's it for the Thursday podcast. Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast. Hey, if you get a chance, I'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Always love to uh, connect with listeners out there. All right. So with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.